I'm Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success, and my aim is to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money, and in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcome adversity and keep on going when times are tough, And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Joe Templin, whose mission it is to reach 100 million people. That's a lot. Joe is a number one best-selling author of Everyday Excellence, which is a new release in professional development and is classified as a multivitamin for life. But he's not just an author. He's an ultra-marathon runner, an international champion in Taekwondo, and he's special needs father, and he describes himself as a human Swiss army knife. So we've got lots of things to explore here, and this is going to be an amazing show, talking about how to achieve goals when things are happening and running against you, how to create a life on your own terms and build a happy life filled with passion and purpose. So let's bring in the great man himself to find out more. Welcome to the show, Joe Templin. Hey, Joe, how are you today? I am absolutely awesome. I don't know if I qualify as a great man, but I'm hopefully slightly educational and entertaining. You know, we had a 10-minute chat to find out, would you be right for Secrets of Success? It didn't take 10 minutes because (laughs) I think after a couple of minutes, you were sitting there so bright, cheerful and happy, and you hadn't spoken much. And I thought, you know, I just have to get this guy on the show. And then we find out all the amazing things. And I, I do recall, I said, Joe, stop. I don't want to know anymore. Let's just save it for the show. So I want to find out about your book, The Vitamins for Life, as it's called. But before we do that, I want to find out more about you, Joe. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child when you were growing up? And what were your dreams and aspirations? So I'm from upstate New York. So for people who are just vaguely aware of uh, New York geography, New York City's down here. Straight north is Montreal and halfway in between is where I grew up. My hometown did not get a traffic light until after I was out of grad school. It still flashes after 5 p.m. It's on the corner with the general store, the town hall, one of the churches. There's still dirt roads. So that's the environment that I grew up in, a small rural farming country. My mom, the nun, yes, my mom was a nun. And my dad, <laughs> Irish Catholic farm family. So, I mean, this is this is basically how this whole story is going to go. 
my dad was the first person in his family to go to college. He went on Army ROTC scholarship. Um, they got married. Obviously, my mom left the nunnery for that uh, after going back in multiple times. Uh, they ended up having six of us. I'm the second of six. I'm the only normal one by comparison. <laughs> rural environment. My mom, after she was done being a nun, became an educator. And so I have this influence of my father, who was military and then started consulting business. They just retired from after over 60 years as a consultant. And my mom, who was an educator, who taught us that school has nothing to do with your learning. And so she's the one who taught us to fire guns. She's the one who taught us to distill alcohol. She's the one who taught us how to hotwire a car. She's the one who gave us the fascination with all things learning, mathematics, science. So she heavily, heavily encouraged that. She was also very strong artistic. I unfortunately can't even draw a straight line with a ruler. That's why I say that I'm a Swiss army knife as opposed to a Renaissance man. But so my brothers and sisters inherited that. We have these two influences going on. I was also though severely, severely asthmatic. So when I was 10 years old, I died. As they say in Monty Python, I got better, but I, I was literally <laughs> Dead, you know, floating on up, bright lights, the whole nine yards, you know, come slamming back down into my body. And from that point forward, I've been how I am. And my friends say that I burn the candle at both ends and in the middle of a flamethrower. Because we only get 86,400 seconds per day. I don't care if you're the queen, now king of England. I don't care if you're Bill Gates. I don't care if you're somebody just getting out of high school or college. You get the same allocation each day. And when it's gone, it's gone. So how do you maximize the use of it? How do you not waste time? How do you get the most effective use of that time, whether it's multitasking or deep dive thought, and be able to, at the end of the day, lay your head down and say, all right, today was a good day, and be able to live your life so that you have no regrets, but wake up with no regrets too. Right. I'm going to hold you there a moment because there's so much there that I want to investigate. So is your mother still alive? No, my mom died of cancer uh, seven and a half years ago, almost eight years ago. I'm sorry to hear that. She sounds like an incredible woman. She was an absolute pisser. And well, she, you know, big heart. One of the best things my mom taught me, and your listeners need to hear this, is that when you're having a bad day, go help somebody else. Go serve somebody in some capacity. Do something for somebody who probably can never repay you, and you will feel better. You will be better. And so that is something that, to this day, when I'm having a bad day, I reach out now and try and take care of or help somebody else, simply because it then changes your perspective completely. I think that... It's probably the most best advice I've ever heard. The hairs on my neck just stood up then. Okay, we're done. I'm just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you have some big, big boots to fill. I want to talk about your mom. Well, she's only five foot tall. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother Teresa was small also. I want to talk about your mom for a moment, if I may. So she was a nun. Yep. <laughs> Taught you how to fire firearms, distill alcohol, hotwire a car, yep. had six kids, 
<laughs> yeah, you, you just have to expand on this a little. So, I mean, my mom was the youngest of seven kids growing up on a farm. So uh, it was the hot wiring the car and driving and all that sort of stuff. Those were just normal, everyday activities that they needed, okay? You know, she was like, I think six years old and driving the farm truck around with her older sister. One of them would steer and the other one would work the pedals and clutch because that back in the you know, 1950s, that's how all vehicles were. And so you know, my aunt would be down on the floor and my mom would be actually steering. And that's just the way that things were. So when you're put in situations where you have to learn skills, you just pick them up or else bad things happen. So one of the things that's really important as we move into a world where things are more convenient, things are more easy, is giving the next generation, even though we can give them everything in the world, is giving them some of those desired difficulties, is giving them some of those basic understandings, giving them some of that love for the earth and hard work and those sorts of components, because that's what's going to carry them forward. We've seen this cycle of you have one generation that uh, comes from nothing and works incredibly hard. They build something successful. Next generation inherits it and they saw the parents build it. And so they maintain it somewhat. But the grandchildren never saw the hard work. And so they destroy it. And we see this cycle with countries. We see it with companies. We see this with families. And so one of the best things we can do is teach that next generation to have the right attitudes. And so as I tell my kids, who are my three boys are wicked smart. Um, I don't care about the grades. I don't care about the outcome at this point. I care about two things, their effort and their attitude. If they have good effort and good attitude consistently, not just in the moment, but everything leading up to that, they're going to be okay. And so when we were talking, it's the end of the marking period. And so I'm asking, all the homework done. Yes. Are you working on you know, practicing your instrument for your concert. Yes, are you doing these things? Okay, what do you need from me so that you can succeed? I'm not going to succeed. Them. I'm not going to be a snowplow parent and push things out of the way. But I'm going to make sure that they have the skill sets and the mindsets to succeed. And that's going to lay the groundwork because if they know how to work hard now, when they go to college or university, as you guys call it, they're going to be prepared to be able to take advantage of that and grow. And after the fact, they're going to be able to continue to do it. Yeah, that's sage advice. I mean, I, I've been thinking about school a lot recently, and I'm not sure that school is right nowadays because they teach you stuff that you can find on Google anytime you like. So you write about attitude, work ethic, effort, and all of those things. Happiness is another one. So your mother was a nun. Yes, she was. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I understand being on a farm, I get the firearms, I get hot wiring a car, alcohol. Come on, tell She's me. She's a biology professor, so I mean, <laughs> we were learning about stuff. <laughs> oh, bless her. She sounds like an amazing lady. I would have loved to meet her. Oh, you, you know, she'd be sitting there before she uh, the cancer took her, she'd be having her cigarette and her cup of coffee and you know so like our neighbor was the local sheriff so he'd come on over at times i'd come home from school and all the nuns would be sitting around the table other times so it was one of those things that i didn't drink coffee until after i was out of graduate school but later on in my life when my mom was still around 
sitting there and just having that cup of coffee and talking and pulling out some of the insight from the experiences or other things that she had seen, that is one of the best uh, things that people can do. So if your listeners, if your parents or grandparents are still around, sit down and take the time and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'm actually going to do is my father, I'm going to set up a couple of Zoom calls. I'm going to record them so that my dad has been incredibly successful in his industry and has taught me a lot. So I can extract more knowledge so I can pass it down to my kids and share it with other individuals. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Okay, your mission, your overriding mission, Joe, is to reach 100 million people. So, I think the only question within is, the next 12 months actually. Oh, so, okay. It needs, let, let, you need to have a deadline on it or yeah, else it's just a dream. Yeah, of course. I mean, let's not water this down at all. So, <laughs> why? I think that's that's the only question, why? Oh, why? That is getting really deep. So, you know, as my mom taught me, if you're having a bad day, go help others. And my mom said something also that is very similar to what the great American distance runner, Steve Prefontaine said, which is to not use the gift is a sin. And so my mom was disappointed that I didn't get my PhD and go on and be a physicist and college professor and do research. And, you know, I had done that. I worked for the Department of Defense. I made weapons. I worked for doing other stuff for the government that I'm not allowed to talk about for a while. Um, You know, so I did all that. But it's like, you know what, when I was in graduate school, I was opening up the Jackson Electromagnetics textbook. I'm doing a calculation and all the math, the physics is in the first line. That's all just math calculations. And 100,000 other graduate students across the world are doing that exact same problem that week. It's like, really? You know, is, is this unique ability? Is this going to truly differentiate? Is this really going to contribute to the world or could somebody else be doing this? And there's lots of other smart physicists out there. So they were able to do that. I was a good physicist, not a great one. But being able to take what I learned as a physicist and a martial artist and a writer and bring it all together gives me the capability to serve people more. I've always had a a love for teaching. As I said, my mom was an educator. Uh, The first coaching that I did, I was like 10 years old. I was the assistant coach to my kid brother and sister's t-ball team. And then I was an assistant coach on volleyball in high school and college. And then I was the assistant instructor and instructor in Taekwondo. And I was a teaching assistant. I tutored people. And what I did professionally very much involved educating and motivating individuals. And so it's just ingrained in my being. I can't just tell somebody, do this, or I can, especially if it's my kids. But it's not the easiest thing for me. I want them to understand why so that they build their internal motivation. So this mission to reach 100 million people, and by the way, I have a saying, the mission is more important than the man. The mission is more important than the man because people, I don't want them to buy into me. I want them to buy into the mission that I'm working on because they have a similar vision of being able to positively impact individuals. So the mission is based on the fact that when I first released the book, I'm like, oh, I want to make New York Times bestseller. Oh, I want to make Amazon you know, top 100. Oh, I want to sell a million copies. And I'm like, that's really arrogant. That's self-centered. That's all about me and my goals. And so with what my mom said, serve others, I'm like, how can I turn this? How can I find something that's, you know, motivating, exciting service to others? 
because as Muhammad Ali said, service to others is the rent that we pay for our room here on earth. And so how can I turn this something bigger? And I looked around and I'm like, you know, we've got COVID going on. And so people are having increased divorce rates. Anxiety is through the roof. You know, we're having mental illness. We're having domestic abuse. We're having people's health is deteriorating incredibly. So uh, there's all this stuff. I'm like, there's all these this negative pressure out there in addition to the normal entropy of just getting older and more complex world and all this stuff. So I looked around like, I need to bend this curve back up. I need to do what I can to help others. And being a physicist, I was looking at network theory. If you look, if we can reach 100 million people and make them a little bit better, just some capacity so that they make slightly better decisions, so that they impact their community better, so that they are slightly happier, that they're slightly healthier, that they work a little bit harder, that they contribute to others, that they serve a little bit more. 100 million nodes like that, they're each going to impact three to five individuals directly. And so we can literally counteract a lot of this downward pressure, this darkness that's out there by focusing on this. And it is a BHAG. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal. It scares the poop out of me how I'm going to do it, quite frankly. And I need to evolve my thinking. I need to recruit new people into it. I need to develop new skills. I need to do things that make me uncomfortable but serve the greater good. And so having this gives me that passion and forces me to, when I'm having a bad day, just suck it up, remember the mission, and jump. When I'm having a good day, it feeds me even further. It gives me something to literally wave the stare of, this is what we're going to do. We're going to accomplish this. And as I've moved along, I said I wanted to uh, do this. My birthday is July 1st, so it's a good day to uh, basically start the clock because it's halfway through the year. So that uh, right around then is when I realized this was the mission and started building the, the coalition to do it. And I'm pushing hard on it, and it's getting, we're accelerating because in the early stages, just like on the book, on anything, uh, you're starting to push and starting to push, and then you hit the non-related growth curve part and really get going. So we're starting to get up there on the good growth part. And I was talking to some friends, and they're like, well, once you do 100, what's the goal then? I'm like, then we go to 250 million. I mean, it was just so obvious. So this becomes essentially an infinite game where there is no deadline. There is no trophy that you get at the end or like the big accolade or whatever. It's like you just keep going because it is that critical. And this is the sort of development that comes into play as a martial artist or as a runner or as a musician or an artist. This is an infinite game where you can just keep improving and keep trying to have greater and greater positive impact and it literally can be a lifelong mission okay this is coming okay, off my soapbox now no that's okay it's okay I, I i'm happy to let you run but i want to backtrack on a couple of things you said there a couple of things are really important for me the first one the mission is greater than the man and i think lots of people don't get that part and people say to me, Jeff, you've achieved so much with your books and things. And they think it's about me. And it isn't. It's, it's about the contribution. I'm just the messenger. So I really get that. And I think goals where people do that, I'm not going to say do the right thing. That, that's not quite right. But where the mission is bigger than you 
there tends to be no burnout and there's all you're always striving to do more and that's where the bigger goals are set so talking of bigger goals you mentioned BHAG which is big hairy audacious goals so we need to have goals that scare us not not little ones the other thing you mentioned was 100 million people but yeah in the next 12 months there needs to be a deadline because if there's no deadline, it's just a dream. So, and then you meant I was going to come back on you because the next 12 months is not specific at all. You can say the next 12 months every day. So I was going to come back with yeah, you. Yeah, and then just keep pushing yeah, the goalposts yeah, out. Yeah, and that's yeah. useless. That, that absolutely useless. But then you confirmed and said, well, my birthday is July 1. That's when the clock started ticking. So by June 30, 2023... Your mission is to have reached a minimum of 100 million people. Yes, sir. That is exactly it. Okay. How are you measuring this? Because people will want to know that. So it's an inexact measure. But for example, if I go on a radio program and they say, okay, we have 400,000 listeners. I take that 400 and I add it to the total. If I, um, on my YouTube channel, I can see the number of people that have seen that. On my TikTok, on the various other things, number of book sales. Um, on the website, I can see the number of people who've gone and read an article. So I'm aggregating all of those. So is it going to be exact? No, it's not. And so the solution to that is just blow through it. So if I can reach you know, 120-ish by that semi-fuzzy metric, yeah, yeah, then I'll know that I have achieved it. And even if I end up at 99 million, I'll be disappointed, but I'll have grown. I'll have learned these skills and I will lay the groundwork to be able to continue to grow and impact other individuals. And so it's the process of getting better. It's the process of improving. It's the process of building a mindset and a machine to be able to reach that many individuals. And if I can maintain that human Kaizen mindset of continuous improvement around this, then what that does is as long as I'm continuing to feed the machine, whether it's the money to be able to hire the right people, whether it's my time writing the books, my investment in meeting other people so I can learn from them like I'm doing here with you, Jeff, things like that, then we can keep that going and growing. And maybe, you know, down the road, it's 500 million. Maybe I eventually we can reach going. I don't know how big this can be, how many people we can impact. But I really want to see how far we can take this and what we can ultimately do. That's wonderful. There's just one word I want to clear up in there when we backtrack. You mentioned the word Kaizen. So I'll explain what it is because some people might be thinking, what on earth is that? So it's a Japanese term for continuous professional development. That's what it's for. Always seek to do better. So this comes from, I guess, your background in Taekwondo, being a martial arts expert and things like that. Now, I'm also from engineering. I went to sure. engineering school, and so most of my friends are engineers. And in the manufacturing world, in the 1990s, everybody applied this. Okay, you know, we can improve this process. We can, you know, save here, and then they have all the six and lean and all this. But it is this mindset of we can always be better, even if it's just a tiny little improvement. When that compounds that can be a huge delta on the far side, huge improvement. And they've applied this, as I said, to manufacturing, to logistics, to finance, 
but is really applied to the most important component of a business, which is the human resource, the individual. And I'm an individualist as opposed to a collectivist. So I believe that organizations, whether it's companies, countries, communities, even family units are built off of individuals. And if the individual can become the best possible that they are with the right um, attitude of service to others, then from there, you can build up incredibly successful communities and organizations of all forms, whether it's charity or for-profit, and be able to leverage and have greater positive impact. So the human Kaizen concept of, I can be better than I am today, even if it's just something slight like, okay, I'll be a little bit better with what I eat today in terms of my health, or I'm going to be slightly nicer to people overall. I'm going to hold the door for one more person today. I'm going to, if I see litter on the ground, I'm going to pick up one piece of litter. I'm going to do one more push-up today in terms of the physical development. These little things become over time a mindset of improvement. And that mindset of improvement leads to the mindset of excellence, or rete as the Greeks called it. And once you achieve that, then you're marshalling all of your resources, both conscious and subconscious, as well as the physical manifestations of them, to improve yourself and the environment around you. And enough people doing that literally become attractive and resonate with other individuals. So it influences them to make better choices. And that's how we can be able to build a better world overall. Awesome. I'll summarize that by saying, especially with goals and success, don't look for one thing that will change your life by 100%. Look for 100 things that each will change your life by 1%. It's about that continuous development. Good. Now, I do want to come to your book. But before we do that, I want to get more into your mindset. So first of all, yeah, yeah, this, this, (laughs) this scary point. So ultra marathon runner, (laughs) over to you. What is an ultra marathon runner, Joe. So an ultra marathon runner generally is not pretty, okay? Because shorter distances, they look really good when they run. When you get to really long distances, it is more mental and emotional than physical. Once you're beyond the distance of a marathon, or really once you get past the wall, which is roughly mile 18, 19 in a marathon, then it is not about your physical training nearly as much. It's not about your technique. It's all about your guts. And so an ultra marathon is defined as anything over marathon. Uh, I, I've always run a little bit. I ran a little bit in high school. I, I've always cross trained with it. I did my first marathon right before my 30th birthday because I said, if I don't do it by the time I turn 30, I'll never do one probably. So I did it uh, for a charity for team and training, which is Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And Leukemia actually later claimed my best friend a couple of years later. So it's sort of ironic that they were the ones that I was working with. Did a couple of marathons i'm like you know what i really don't like this i don't like you know all the preparation for the marathon you know the time of that day you know the, the, they tend to be these huge events where you have like 40 50 000 people at a time i'm not a big crowd sort of person again I'm a farm boy my hometown had more cows than people in fact we didn't even have sidewalks i had to learn to parallel park using a tractor as opposed to uh, a car because there were no cars on the side of the road to work with. So that's the sort of environment I'm much more comfortable in. Um, so I, I uh, 
started about eight, 10 years ago doing something called Ragnars, which are about 200 mile team relay races. So you run six or three legs, uh, anywhere from three miles up to nine miles. So you do about 16, 17 miles each. Uh, you're sleeping in a van, you're like sleeping on floors of schools and all this stuff. You get Stockholm syndrome from being with your buddies. It's awesome. I've done about 25 of those. I've done a couple of my medals for them. Um, but when COVID hit, we couldn't do those. We couldn't get together and I couldn't see my friends, you know, so we were feeling this loss. So one of the people on the team said, okay, we're going to do something crazy so we don't do something insane. And so we started having like virtual races. So we had a Ragnar where we were mailing stuff back and forth, the slap races. We did a virtual one where you had to call the next person and say, okay, it's time for you to go on out. And we decided one day we were going to do a backyard ultra. So a traditional backyard ultra is every hour you get up and you run anywhere between one and three miles. And then the next hour you do it again. The next hour you do it again. And um, so we were doing this and it was like one of the hottest days of the year here. It was like 90 degrees and everybody else is dropping out after you know, 25, 27 miles. So technically at that point, it's an ultra. And I just kept going. I got to 40 miles. I'm like, you know what? I swore I would never run another marathon again because I hit him so much. But at this point, my mind's you know, melting down and everything. So I'm like, okay, two negatives make a positive from a mathematical point. So I'm going to do two marathons today. And therefore I didn't do a marathon. And at <laughs> 38 miles in, it made sense. No, so, Joe, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like one marathon, so I'll run two. We guess in math, two negatives make a positive. No, Joe, no. That, that is like insane. <laughs> um, yeah. What um, my, my friends have said that I'm crazy, but I'm a fun type of crazy. And, you know, I'm the good sort of crazy in some ways. So uh, um, I, I get to like mile 40 in the marathon in my ultra. And I'm, you know, I've got almost no emotional reserves. I've got no, almost no physical reserves. I'm looking like a broken shuffling pirate. Uh, but I keep, I'm keeping going. Well, my friends called me and she was having a major issue in her life and almost breaking down everything. So I spent the next two hours on the phone with her while I'm continuing to shuffle along, basically talking her off the ledge and whatever emotional resources I had, I was giving to her. Going back to what my mom said, you're having a bad day, help somebody else out. Well, I was having a bad day at that point, obviously, because I'm like 40 plus miles into this thing. Remember the first person who did a marathon died. Um, and so I'm giving all my attention and resources to her. And when I got off the phone with her, I'm to at like mile 50. I'm like, it's only two miles. Anyone can do two miles. So afterwards, I'm in the shower. I'm having my shower beer and, you know, the blood's running down my legs. That's what happens when you do ultra marathons. So I'm like, you know what? If I actually plan this better, I can go further. So six months later, I did 100 kilometers. And did it in two hours less than it took me to do 52 miles. And then I'm like, all right, I'm getting into this. So I started training and I was going to do a hundred miler uh, in April, but in January I broke my leg and messed up my ankle and all that. So it's been a year when I've been for the most part, not racing. I only did one Ragnar, but it's that recovery process that is critical. And one of the things that my physiotherapist reminds me is that rest is as important as the training itself. And that's not my nature. And so I have to work at it even more, which is helping to 
make me somewhat balanced in some capacities. You're crazy. Right. Thank you. Let, let me tap into this crazy part. So I don't run marathons. Running is not my thing. Even Oh, I hate running. I yeah. hate running. Uh, and I, you, I never went crazy. to that until David Goggins, the ultra marathoner, admitted that he hates running. So I'm like, okay, if he hates it, I can run it. He did too, even though I don't. Yeah. I run 5K most days. And I now I've got into that and supporting my well-being. You're right. Rest is the most difficult part. It's like, hey, you should not run today. And it's like, yeah, but I want to run today. So I get that completely. However, I'm not going to run a marathon. It's not in my mindset. But I know lots of people who have run a marathon and they talk about hitting the wall. Okay, what happens? So someplace between mile 18 and 19 typically is when your body literally runs out of fuel. Your, your muscles start, uh, store the glycogen which uh, then turns into energy. And as you're burning through it, you, your body can't necessarily replenish it the same way. Okay, so you, you're a carbo load the night before, your muscles are all full, you blow through it all, and then it's like, what am I doing to get the energy to literally keep moving forward? So that's why people take power gels or drink uh, Powerade or Gatorade or stuff like that. They're eating during it. And so they need to replenish while they're doing it. And so this is actually a huge thing when you're doing an ultra marathon, because if you're going for 20 hours, your body literally does not want to consume food because one of the things from the nervous system is that we shift the blood flow to what is necessary for survival at the moment. It goes to the muscles as opposed to the digestive tract. So if you're doing something for like eight, 10 hours, you don't want to eat necessarily. So when you have a really hard workout, you don't want to replenish because the muscles are still taking all of the blood flow as opposed to the digestive tract. So you need to actually force yourself to eat in that situation. During a marathon or an ultra marathon, you need to force yourself to consume the calories to keep going. So mile 18 to 19 is when the wallet hits and you have this big drop in energy where you're literally spent physically. And you're at typically two and a half to three and a half miles or hours into the marathon. So you're mentally spent and you're like, oh God, I still got to go another eight miles. And suddenly you're talking against yourself and literally everything starts breaking down at that point. So the wall is this huge emotional barrier, emotional and physical barrier. And you need to break through that to be able to finish it. And that is the, one of the hardest things for first-time marathoners because I see too many people literally stopping at that point because they can't get through the hard thing because they haven't done enough hard things leading up to that. That's one of the best, best things about running ultra marathons or doing martial arts or any of these other things is that I'm constantly making deposits in the emotional and mental bank account. I go out and run in the rain even though I hate it and it's and all that and it's cold and nasty and everything and it's like it's so much easier to go on the treadmill or sit on the couch but by choosing to do those things when you don't have to you make yourself stronger for when you do have to because eventually we're all going to have those negative things in our lives you're going to have your mother develop cancer you're gonna have your father develop Alzheimer's you're gonna have your kid try and kill themselves 
you're going to have the emotional breakup with the person that you love dearly and it leads to bad things. You're going to get downsized at work. You're going to have these issues throughout your life. It is how can you deal with them? And one of the ways that you deal with them is doing hard things when you don't have to so that you are strong enough inside to deal with it. And that is one of the big things about martial arts or running long distances is that you build that strength so that when you need to, you can tap into it. That makes great sense. Um, I hate running. And because I travel a lot, one of the things that uh, disrupted me was lack of routine. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I used to do some weight training. I did karate, uh, black belt in karate. But as soon as I lost routine, then I was unable to continue to function with those things. Took my foot off the pedal for a while and then didn't like where I ended up. Heavier than I wanted to be, not as fit as I wanted to be. Not just physically, but yeah, mentally yeah. too, right? Uh, Much happier. Absolutely. The, the whole thing stacks up. So I decided to run because swimming is my thing, but I could move to a hotel one week that had a pool. Then the next week I'll go to another hotel. They didn't have a pool. So I couldn't continue. But the one thing I could do, no matter where I was, run. It took me two years, Tim, to say, okay, I, I, the only thing left to, to me is to run. And I decided to start running in February. Uh, February is probably our coldest month. We get snow. Now, I'm not going to run in the snow. That would be very silly. But it was very, very cold. It was wet every day. So I bought all the gear to run with the mindset that you just said. Because I thought, if I can run now, and maintain running, then when winter is over and summer comes, running will then be easy, right? No. It worked. I would not go so far as to say that I enjoy running, but it's not. But you enjoy what running does yes, for you. Yes, absolutely. And that is that, one of the different. key criteria of dis discipline, yeah. is doing what you enjoy in the moment or doing what you enjoy overall. And so this actually leads to one of my critical uh, lessons I talk about is I call it the Herculean choice because Hercules was basically faced with the same sort of thing. But in every moment, we are offered two different paths, just like Hercules was. One's the path of ease, but it leads to bad places, long range. One is difficult. It's rocky. You know, so in any moment, I can open up the book and study for my exam, and that's difficult now, or I can play video games. And I get the, the dopamine hit, and it feels really good in the moment and all that, but then I fail the exam. And it leads to a worse place. I can uh, you know, go for a run in the rain, or I can sit on the couch eating Cheetos and watching the Kardashians. Okay? Sitting on the couch is rewarding in the moment, but if you keep doing that, you're going to develop diabetes, you're going to develop heart problems, you're going to be more susceptible to COVID and all sorts of other things. You get all those bad negative long-range effects because you decide to do what felt good in the moment versus deferring my gratification, doing something a little bit harder, but then making my life easier overall. So 
for example, I, uh, I'm 30, 20, because I refuse to admit that I'm 50 years old, but I can, I'm faster than people half my age in terms of my hand speed. I am more athletic. I mean, if I wear a hat, so you can't wear the gray, I get carded to buy alcohol because my chronological age and my physical and mental ages are so different. So I'm in that green and growing phase constantly because I keep doing the hard things. I went for a, a hike with one of my friends and you could have taken this nice, easy path that went around or you could have hopped rock to rock to rock and gone straight through the middle and had this gorgeous view. And she ended up taking a long path. I'm going on the rocks and she's like, don't you ever do the easy thing? I'm like, how long have you known me? <laughs> but that is an exact analogy for things. And I got to see great views. And by doing the hard things, it makes your life a lot easier or it at least seems easier because we're all going to have pain. We're all going to have struggle and difficulty. And if you avoid it now, it compounds. And so you have much more, much worse down the road. For example, with your business partner, if you avoid having the conversations when things are going, aren't going right on little things, if you avoid that conversation because it doesn't feel good or you don't want to make waves or whatever, the, the business is going to have all sorts of issues down the road. If you don't confront your significant other on something that's going on, you're going to end up divorced, okay? Or there's going to be cheating. There's going to be all sorts of bad things. If you don't tell your kid, hey, you need to pick that up. You need to develop good early habits. They're going to be a hooligan and maybe even a juvenile delinquent or worse. So doing the little tough things, telling the kid no, even though it makes you feel bad for a second, is the right thing because they then develop the parameters to become a good person and they're going to have a better life overall. So is doing the difficult things in every situation. As I said, we have two choices and we make these decisions on a regular basis. I'm a big comic book guy. I love Marvel comics specifically Thor, but in the Deadpool movie, Colossus tells Deadpool four or five moments, four or five moments is what determines if you're a hero or a villain. Now I don't have superpowers, unfortunately, uh, but four or five moments is actually the difference in every person's day. We make, 10 to 15,000 micro decisions each day. We have 50 to 75,000 thoughts. If we can make slightly better choices four or five times per day, that's going to change the arrow from pointing down to pointing up. And when you combine that over time, that's how you get that nonlinear growth curve and ultimately end up in a much better place by choosing to do the little hard things. I'm so with you there. I'm so with you. My son-in-law, James. We played table tennis. It started off just for fun. And then uh, the fun was, hey, Jeff, I'm going to whip your ass. And like He's <laughs> ha half of my age. And, and like, you're like, you, you, you know, no. James, that's really not going to happen. <laughs> so, so, and it didn't. <laughs> so so uh, he booked a table tennis table in a local leisure centre, which is three kilometres away. He drove in the car. What did I do? You ran. I put my backpack on and I ran it there. <laughs> and we get there and he goes, wow. And I said, yeah. And then we played table tennis for an hour and a half. He said, do you want a lift back? No, I'm running back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then uh, I gathered all the stats on my iPhone and then sent him the shot and I said, it wouldn't be quite the same with you driving your car for the 3K. It took you to get home now, would it? 
but I, I think yes, it did me mentally better. Mentally, because I think I run here, and if I can do that, then you know I'm nine one down and still win a game. Mental tenacity, and it just no. makes that fighting. You know, if I can do that, I can do this. And here's the thing: he might have actually beat you that day, but you're doing the things to make sure that overall you're going to win more often because of the physical. Uh, conditioning because of the mental attitude because of as I tell people my young martial artists age and wisdom will always overcome youth and enthusiasm yeah so getting that experience of not just uh, who you are but what your limits are allows you to push them more often which means that somebody who hasn't been tested is going to fall more easier you know, failure is feedback. Failure is how the universe tells us, okay, this is your limit. And by once you know that limit, then you can expand it by redlining, as uh, you be your car guy will know, of going right up to the limit over and over and over again. You push that envelope out further and you become more comfortable becoming uncomfortable and can ultimately do greater things. Yeah. He did not win, by the way. Awesome. So I was 9-1 down. The game was to 11, and I still won multiple times, and he still doesn't know how I did this. Still doesn't it's know. It's because it's all yeah, up here. Uh, absolutely right. It, it is all up there. So much about that. Okay, I want to get more about up there. We talked about ultramarathoner. You're an international champion in Taekwondo. Now, again, I want to know about mindset. How do how does someone become an international champion? Now I know there's been problems along the journey, which is something else as well on top of that. But first of all, let's talk about mindset about becoming a champion. So there's two components to this. And think of it as the two wings of a bird. Because if you've got one wing, you're not gonna fly. And if you have both wings, but something happens and you damage the other one, you're going to spiral down to the ground. So you need to have both wings. The first one is a vision. As it says in the Bible, people without a vision will perish. You need to have that vision of winning the championship, of becoming a great martial artist, of impacting 100 million people. You need to have that because that is going to create or reinforce the discipline. That's going to be the picture of the goal on the wall, like if you want to have that sports car or you want to get into this particular university or you want to fit into that uh, outfit for your high school reunion, having that image there, having that vision that you're working towards, but it's also the daily disciplines around it, the structure, the micro choices in the environment. And one of the things that um, Arnold Schwarzenegger said is that he didn't need discipline because he loved what he was doing. He had this vision of him being Mr. Universe, winning it over and over again. And so he would you know, literally do sets until he puked and passed out, wake up and keep going. He, and he was good friends with Muhammad Ali. He once asked Muhammad Ali, how many sit-ups do you do? And Ali told him, I don't know. I don't start counting until it hurts. Okay, so a lot of people are 
incredible in terms of tracking their workouts and they have to do this every single day and we're going to do this. Other people don't necessarily need that. They have the, they just have such love for what they're doing that they're going to do what it takes. You need to have that because that's going to be your fuel on the bad days when it's cold and rainy outside or, you know, you're hurt, which athletes were always hurt a little bit. Um, or you're exhausted or your kid was up at four o'clock in the morning puking and you're supposed to get up to train at five thirty in the morning. Those sort of things happen. Or if you're you know, working till 11 PM one day and you got 6 AM the next day, uh, video conference like this, you need to have that as your fuel, your big why, because as Frederick Nietzsche said, a man with a strong enough why will be able to come, overcome almost any how, but then you need to have your daily discipline of having the habit stack that James Clear talks about. And when you were talking about stacking up, it made me think about that. Of this is the routine to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do every single day. So if you want to build an incredibly successful business, yeah, you have this vision, but there's a couple of things that you know you need to do every single day, whether it's picking up the phone to call new clients, whether it's recording five videos for your social media, whether it's uh, sending a hundred cold emails to potential clients, what have you, you know, you've got those daily things that you need to do. And so having a proper habit stack in the morning, every single morning I would get up and do my Taekwondo for it. So I was still competing. So I would get up at five 30 in the morning. Didn't matter if I worked until four o'clock in the morning in the bar when I was in grad school bartending five 30 in the morning, I was up training period case closed. Okay. And you get up and you do, you have your base routines. And so, one of the things my Taekwondo master taught me is echoed by Malcolm Gladwell with the 10,000 hour rule to be achieve mastery. Master Grant taught me decades before that to do a technique, you have to execute it a hundred times to understand it. You need to do it a thousand times and to master it. You need to do it 10,000 times. So this repetition where what you're literally doing is you're taking and you're training your body and mind to the point where it is no longer a neocorticable uh, skill set that you're learning, but is automatic response all the way down in the crocodile brain in the reptilian uh, complex or the basal ganglia so that you literally flip the switch. So like I was fighting one of my turns and sparring partners. This is years and years ago, uh, over 25 years ago. So I'm 150 pounds. This guy was 240 pounds and he fought Tyson. Okay, Tyson used to beat on this guy every day. Six foot four, redheaded, left-handed Irishman, 240 plus pounds. And I'm fighting him and he knocks me out. I'm like, bang, bounces me in the wall. I come off that wall, I'm out. There's nobody home. Now I kept fighting for the entire two plus minutes of that round and came out for the next three rounds against this guy. He was knocking out 220 pound guys without blinking an eye. And at the end, he's like, that kid has more heart than anyone I've ever seen because he knocked me out, but he couldn't get me out of the fight. And that's because you train so much in terms of the every single day getting up and doing what I had to do. And that's a combination of the skill set and the will set that ultimately when you unify them, that's how you have success. So having both and uh, wings of the bird, having the vision, doing the work every single day repetitively and people don't like the repetitive nature of things. They want it easy. They want to take the pill to lose the weight. They want to have the surgery to, you know, become beautiful. They want to like download stuff into their brain, like the matrix so that they instantly get skills and knowledge. And that's not the way things work. Yes. You can enhance what you're doing, but you gotta be 
uh, doing all of the work right along. So my normal habit stack uh, for the entire time that I was writing the book, it's a little bit different now, was that I would get up, I would grab my half cup of coffee because I left a half cup ready to go and I'd turn on the coffee pot because I prepped it the night before. Your day begins the night before. Always remember that. So the coffee pot was ready to go. So the fresh coffee was being made while I was sitting there having that half cup to basically prime the pump. I would sit down and I would write out what was ever in my brain because when we sleep, uh, and especially when we're transitioning in and out of sleep, we're producing theta waves and that's when the brain uh, is most uh, permeable and malleable and that's when your subconscious and conscious can communicate and that's when you solve the best problems. So I'd brain dump and write because I'm a writer. Then I would read. I would read um, Daily Stoic last year. This year it's Daily Laws by Robert Greene and I'm reading my own book. And so I'd read. Then I would go for a 20-minute run to get the body moving, to get the blood flushing because activity like that, physical activity, literally lights up the entire brain. The only thing that parallels it is music in terms of how it stimulates the brain. So I'd go and run. I'd sit down and write again for about 20 minutes. Then I'd go do my martial arts for about 30, 35 minutes. Then I'd sit down and I'd write again because, as Dr. Uh, Sir Richard Branson says, Exercise is one of the greatest productivity tools that you can have. Right after you work out, your brain is on fire. You are literally smarter, more creative for about the next 30 to 40 minutes. And so I took advantage of that, and I would alternate between these two things. And I'd sit down, I'd write some more. Then I'd get up, and I'd actually go, uh, and I'd do my, during my martial arts, I would do the first basic punch that I ever learned, or stand center punch, 100 times each hand minimum because that was one of my set points it was basically allowing me to build my day off that no matter what happened before what happened later i had that good moment that thing that i've done over and over and over again and also that repetition as i said it takes ten thousand times to master a technique that technique i've done over 10 million times the reason why i'm faster than guys half my age still is because i focus on those basic things i don't need to think about it. i can just execute it so I could be literally dead and still throw that technique and take out of that guy. Awesome. Does and one, then just roll forward from there. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's so much, so much I want to go back and question, but we're going to run out of time. But <laughs> there's, there's one thing I want to pull back from there. You said the day begins the night before. Yes, sir. Now, that really resonated with me. But rather than me talk about that, I'm going to let you. So I'm passing that one back to you, Joe. What do you mean by that? So as I used to tell young uh, salespeople in my organization, if you're out drinking until early o'clock in the morning, you can't be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for the 7 a.m. So, yeah, you might be able to do it once, but if it's a habit, it's going to catch up to you wickedly quickly. And I was actually listening to um, Dr. Andrew Huberman, the neuroscientist, saying that multiple days of sleep deprivation is the best way to drive somebody crazy or crack their brain. And unfortunately, we as a society are living in sleep deprivation. I'm not a big sleeper. I never have been. Five hours is good for me. I'm ready to go. Uh, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said, sleep faster. Um, but so... <laughs> So, in terms of getting good quality sleep, 
So there's certain things that you can do to help fall asleep quicker, like take a hot shower and then uh, ice bath it real quick so that your body produces melatonin. Turn off the screens for at least 30 minutes beforehand because the blue light and the accelerates. Need something that is not super intellectually stimulated to start slowing down. Um, do your gratitudes or your prayers or your meditation, whatever appeals to you as a routine to basically tell the body it is time to start shutting down. Try and be fairly consistent with when you're going to bed and when you're falling asleep. Uh, sometimes you can't fall asleep. Actually, get up. If you, you're like your body's not working, like so, like we were talking about uh, earlier about not sleeping or not having a good night. Literally, get out of the bed. Get out of the bed. Get out of the room. Go do something else for a couple of minutes. Walk back in because when you transition through the doorway, there's a mental transition that says, "Okay, it's time to be getting ready for bed." And it doesn't matter that you weren't able to sleep previously; you're able to reset that process. So this is one of the things I have a special needs kid and sometimes he just gets up on the wrong side of that because that's what happens. You know, something happens and keys them off uh, the way that a autistic mind works is that there's an entire sequence that the sequence breaks for some reason, things don't go exactly what they want, then it can cascade out of control. So what we do is we actually have uh, ways to go back and reset that. So he was having a horrible day a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, we're not doing this. So I literally brought him back upstairs and um, take his glasses off, put him on the, uh, his thing. I put him in bed. I wrapped him tight, almost swallowed him because a lot of autistic people like having that feeling. So I tucked him into bed real tight, turned off the light, said, all right, good night, buddy. Walked on out. About five minutes later, I walked back in and woke him up as if it was a total reset today. We literally hit the reset button for it. And about 75% of the time, that works. So if you're having trouble getting to sleep, restart your sleep pattern of what you do to prepare for it. And you can do this throughout the day too. If you're having a bad day, if you're realizing that you're being nasty to your assistant or things are just not going right, go into your office, close the door, reset. Maybe it's taking 15 deep breaths. Maybe it's taking a walk around the block. Maybe it's you blast some heavy metal music for a couple of moments. Whatever works for you. But reset to that point and then move forward because um, the great jazz guitarist Joe Pass said, it's not that you play a bad note, it is what you do after it to make it right. Sage advice indeed. Some wonderful tips. So I think we've found out the kind of person you are. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> We've got a little bit about your mindset. So now I think is the time to talk about your book. It's called Everyday Excellence. So here's, here's my questions. Who is it for? What does it strive to achieve? And why do you think you were the person to write it? Oh, why me? That's what I haven't thought about. So let me think about that while I answer that. So who's it for? Yeah. This book is for anybody that wants to be better in some capacity. And unfortunately, that is not as large of a group as you would think. When we're little kids and we're learning to walk, 
we just keep doing it. It doesn't matter how many times we fail. We stand up, we fall down. We stand up, we fall down. We stand up, we grab the couch, we fall down. We stand up, we move a couple inches, we fall down. And they do this thousands of times. Why? Because it's in our nature to learn and grow and explore as babies and young children. And also, they see the big people walking around and they want that. They see other people having and doing things that they want to do. And so they're willing to make the effort to fail over and over again to get to that point. And somewhere around five years old, we start losing that. And by the time we are grown-ups, uh, per Dr. Carol Dweck, only about 40% of people have a growth mindset. And I think it's actually less than that because we get comfortable. Comfort kills. Write that down, everybody. Comfort kills. We get into a space where it's like, um, you know, I don't want to stay extra at work. I don't want to work hard. I don't want to do the extra work up in the gym. I don't want to make the effort with my spouse. You know, I'll just eat this extra cupcake and it doesn't matter if I get, you know, a little bit heavier because they're not going anywhere. So it is that loss of that childlike enthusiasm and growth mindset and desire for betterment. And so my book is written for anybody that actually still maintains that in some capacity. If you're like barely there and you're needing the kick in the pants and the pat on the back to move forward, this book can help you because as a daily reader, it's small chunks. It's a multivitamin for life because you take it every single morning. It's literally two to five minutes every single day that compounds over time to help you out. If you're already in that growth mindset, this book will be able to basically pour gasoline on the fire and accelerate you and give you new concepts and new ideas. I have a friend who's the former chief of psychiatry at one of the local teaching hospitals. And they're like, just below the surface on, in this book is so much psychology that people won't even realize it unless they're psychologists. But it's assembled from all these different places. I use quotes from different individuals as the basis for every single day. And so there is this vast uh, iceberg of knowledge and content just below the surface that people don't see. And if they just see the top of it, that's okay because it can get them that little 1% better for a while. But as they go deeper and deeper, that's where they're going to compound that 1% improvement. And so it's a quote from somebody, could be William Shakespeare, could be Bruce Lee, could be Mahatma Gandhi, you know, could be Jocko Willick. There's all these different quotes. Then there's discussion and analysis around it, and the individual is going to find in there what they're looking for. This is very much like the Oracle of Delphi, where I hit lots of different areas, whether it's physical health, mental health, spiritual health, relationships, occupation, communication, nutrition, all these different components of our lives. And I hit all, a lot of these different things, so that's why it's multi-family because it helps fill in those gaps. But the big thing is that unless we actually do something, we're not going to improve. It's not thoughts and prayers. It's thoughts and prayers and action that actually changes the world. So every single day, there's an action item. And some days it might be as complex as or difficult as writing out all the reasons why you're upset with somebody and literally saying, I forgive you for X and crossing it out. I forgive you for Y. That's a very emotional, difficult one that you know I actually do my book every day. That one, that one was a little hard to do that one morning. Other ones are relatively easy, like smiling at five people. 
night before we jumped on the call, we were like laughing like maniacs over something that we said. <laughs> and, you know, look, you're laughing now. Your cortisol levels just dropped from that smile and that laughter. You have improved blood flow to your brain and you're going to be smarter and more creative for the next 10, 15 minutes. And because of the mirror neurons in the body, if you laugh or smile, people around you are going to want to laugh and smile. So you are giving them the gift of health and of increased happiness and it costs you nothing. So that's why that's one of my favorite action items in the book is because of not only how does it impact ourselves, but how does it impact the people in our community and around us? And going back to that impacting 100 million people mission, if I can get 100 million people smiling more and laughing more every single day, that's literally going to be the positive butterfly effect on the entire world. Great. That's a good overview. What I'd like, to, uh, uh, sadly, I don't have your book yet. I've ordered it, it's not yet arrived. But when it does, I will, of course, read it and then speak with you again. However, what I don't know, and it's the reason for this question, you, you've explained your book, but how does it work? How is it put together? Is it a book that you begin at page one, read to the end, and you're done? Or No, not okay. really. So it, it's got 366 different days in there. Right. So one for every day of the year, including leap year. It's got an introduction and an outro section, obviously. So if somebody gets it for January 1st, what I'd say is read the introduction, read January 1st, and do the action item from that particular day. And then every morning, make it part of your habit stack and read and spend the two to five minutes of doing what it says and do it in the morning because then you're thinking about it throughout the rest of the day. A lot of people actually go back and recap it and reread it in the evening to reinforce the thoughts and that is highly effective i'm not going to tell you to do that but if you decide to do that on your own volition then that's a good thing now we're recording this and it's probably going to come out not on january 1st so what i recommend people do at that point is read the introduction just so that they understand it read the first couple of days of january so that they get a feel for it and then jump to that particular day and then go on through, and then the next calendar year, go on through it again. And the Stoics have a saying that no person can walk through a river twice because the river's different and the person's different. Same thing with going back and rereading this book. This is like the fifth or sixth time that I've read this book since I wrote it. And I'm going through and I'm learning new things, and it's forcing me to do things that I might not be comfortable with or better for me every single day. And so when you go back through it, but, you know, you can write in the book, use a different color pen. I've got books that I've gone through 10, 15 times in my life where you can see notes from when I was in my teens versus my 30s versus today because I've evolved and my interpretation of it has evolved. So this then becomes a tool that people can use over and over again throughout their life to re-key off that growth mindset or to remind them in some capacities of the greatness that they have within that they can reveal to the world if they want. Mm, it's like a painting, isn't it? Every time you look at it, you see something different. Right. And this is the greatest painting that possible because it's of ourselves. And we are both the painter and the canvas. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. So the tricky one you've never been asked before, why you? You know, I'm just an average show in a lot of ways. 
intelligence. Yeah, I've got a little bit of extra intelligence. I started college at 13, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that because my parents said 12 was too young. So, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm intelligent, but I'm, I'm just a, a, a normal kid. I mean, as I say, I'm more an athlete than athlete because I'm not naturally talented in terms of the athletic capabilities, but I've achieved great things because I worked at it. I kept doing it. And I've been around great people who have inspired me, whether it's my friend, uh, you know, Dr. Stolk, who's a member of the Royal Dutch Marines, or it's uh, musicians that I know, or artists, or even just hanging out with little kids. So it's probably the fact that my mom encouraged us to learn. When I was like eight years old, I told her I wanted to learn everything that there was to know. And she's like, huh, there's the encyclopedia, get to work now. So I literally did read the entire encyclopedia. Uh, so, but it's this ability to cross-pollinate, to take a concept from the martial arts and apply it in the business world, to take something that I learned in physics and apply it in financial planning, to look at psychology and poetry and physics and psychiatry all as ways of doing the exact same thing of trying to understand the world. And because I was so horrible as a kid, I was, you know, ADHD, I was high energy, I wasn't the most conscientious, I I wasn't the nicest kid at all times. You know, I lacked empathy. And so I worked at it. And not having physical talents from my asthma, I worked at it. And so it just eventually became a mindset of doing this and what my mom said about, you know, um, if you don't use the gift, it's a sin. Having this exposure to teaching and this capability of writing that I developed, it just became, all right, this is something I have to do. I have no control of it. Writers write, fighters fight. This is just what I do. I have to do this because I don't want to say it's what I was put on this earth to do because um, there's other things that I could be doing, but this is how I'm going to be able to have the maximum impact on this planet and help other people. And so that's why I had to write this in the future books. Okay. You said a few things. That's a great question. Thank yeah. you. Ah, Grace, um, I'm going to extend it even further because this, this subject I'm going to ask you about now is one that I ask a lot of guests because I'm asked about it an awful lot. Joe, it's about purpose. Do you think people have a purpose in life? Do you think we were put on the earth here to achieve something, as, as you said? We each have multiple potential purposes. Okay, so we've got a natural tendency towards certain things. For example, I'm very mathematically uh, and scientifically oriented. Versus, you know, I can't draw. I literally can't. I've tried it. I, 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 I've done art. And it looks like a, a, a kindergartner. My Cub Scouts make fun of my drawings, and that's okay. But I tried. Okay? I don't have the capability there, even though there is a little bit of appreciation. I appreciate art. I just can't do art. Same way I appreciate music. I can't sing. You don't want me to sing. Okay? I appreciate physical activity, but I'd never be in the NBA. I can't dunk a basketball, you know, things like that. I can barely skate, so I'm never playing in the NHL. But I love those aspects of things. So the combination, really what the Japanese call ikigai, 
where you have a talent, you have desire, it really fires you up and the universe like rewards it in different capacities. If you can find those intersections, that's where you're going to discover purpose. And something like 75% of Americans hate their job. And the reason why is because what they're doing is out of alignment with their personality, their mindset, who they are and what they want to think about. And they can bend that curve. I mean, you're not going to go from having a crappy job working at McDonald's or with a corporation doing stuff that you really dislike to your dream position overnight. But you can work on the same thing with everything else. You make small changes. You improve your LinkedIn and your CV. You develop more um, connections. You start studying in certain areas. You get a designation. You can, over time, change these things. So that purpose, we all have a couple of things that potentially are uh, our purpose, but it is one having the opportunity to discover it. So in your teens and 20s, you should be in a discovery mode. And then in your later 20s and 30s, you're in basic skill and will development mode. And then from there, you're actually doing it. From the time that you're in your late 30s, early 40s onward, you should have figured out why you're here, figured out how to do it. And now you should be at the point where you're actually living with that purpose and having that positive impact on you. And too many people never discover it. And that's one of the reasons why you have so many affairs, you have so many people with drug addictions, you have so many with phone addictions, which is a massive thing, or food addictions or all these things. That's why people are miserable is because they haven't figured that out. So for your younger listeners, figure out what gets you going, figure out what excites you, figure out how to build your future. For people in that middle range, start doing it, start making the changes, you know, get that app off the phone that wastes your time, you know. Uh, start studying, take that class, uh, build relationships with people who are going to make you better, and then move into the point where you're actually doing Okay. The chronology you've mentioned there, what about if someone is 30-20? In other words, 50, just like you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an old sorry, Chinese so saying, <laughs> hey, you know what? Yeah. I'm, I'm, one of my goals is to eventually win a race because I'm not fast. I've never won a race in my life in the age 100 plus age division. And the reason why that's a goal is because I think everybody else is basically going to yeah. die off before then. <laughs> uh, so I have a chance to win, but it also means that I need to make it to that point and continue to be strong and contributing and all that. So it influences my choices. Now, if people without a vision will perish, my vision is to make it to 105 and be winning a race then. I got to be doing certain things now to get there. Yeah. Uh, where were we going with this? Yeah, oh, well, the, the, so the extra mile. 20. Yeah, the extra so, mile is never crowded. So here's, here's exactly. my question. But, here's, but yeah. what your question was, Jeff, was if somebody is more chronologically advanced and they haven't discovered that, yeah. what they're supposed to be doing, how do they do that? Well, you got to remember, Ray Kroc was like in his 50s when he bought into McDonald's. So you can always do this. The Chinese have a saying that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So today you can start moving forward. Today you can you know, go on to Wikipedia and look at the facts of the day and see if something excites you. Today you can randomly Google some phrase to see if it excites you. You can do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Today, 
to figure out, okay, these are the sort of things that I really don't like. My job has too much of them. What do I need to do to start going forward? Today is always the most important day. That's one of the things that people going through Alcoholics Anonymous or any of these other programs uh, talk about is, and I talk about when I'm coaching individuals, I don't care what you did yesterday. It's important, yes. Tomorrow, tomorrow will come. Lay the groundwork for it. But the most important thing is, what do you do today? Do you do the things that you need to do to move yourself forward? If yes, that is all that matters. Okay. All right, then. So you've achieved some, I'm going to say crazy things. They're not really crazy. I'm using your words. Ultramarathon runner. They're pretty cool. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what are the some of the effective tools that you use to stay focused on your goals? So remember, I'm ADHD. So I've got this mindset. Like if you look, my other computers sit in my office, which is a mess as opposed to a recording studio. It's got like comic book stuff and just crazy stuff in there. And I've got probably 25 browser tabs open. Because that's the way that I work in a lot of capacities. We need to understand, are we doing deep dive work where it takes all of our attention? Or are we doing stuff that is low requirement? And so we can do multiple things simultaneously. Can we multitask? So, for example, driving on into the office this morning, you know, I'm moving my molecules around. I can't be doing martial arts or other stuff like that at that moment. But I was listening to a podcast or an audiobook at that. So I'm double dipping in that time. This time that we're talking here, the phone's on airplane mode. Everything is shut up. This is the most important thing in the universe to me right now. And so I am hopefully maximizing the performance for your listeners and you adding the absolute best possible value that I can. And this high focus time is the result of everything that's led up to it. There's always these chain of events. So this is going to be the best that I can do, hopefully. And when it's done, I move on and then I'll be, I'll switch from this high intensity thing, which is, takes a ton of energy to a multitasking sort of thing. I'll walk around the office for a couple of minutes and make the, co- the new coffee and listen to a podcast and put together my list of things I need to do for the day and all that. So that's low resolution. And then I can switch back into really high focus and alternate between these and be doing different things. So what I do for relaxation of running marathons, martial arts and all that is incredibly (laughs) stressful, but it's a different sort of stress than the intense mental energy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so it really becomes you stress as opposed to distress in some capacities. And so by shifting like this, you can get greater performance because it's like if you go to the gym and you hit chest and then you hit legs and then you hit arms, you're using different muscle groups. So then you can cycle back and hit chest again and be able to improve the performance. Okay. So the the reason I smiled and then started laughing there was when you said the things I do to relax like an ultramarathon. And I mean <laughs> I mean I, I I think I get that because I said earlier my thing is swimming. So I can dive in the pool and swim for a few hours. 
I think you'll get this. I'm not swimming. The, my, the swimming is just autopilot. I set my you're, watch. You're actively meditating. Yeah, my mind is elsewhere. I'm gone. In, huh? my, my watch is just counting the lengths, and I look every now and again, how many lengths have I done, how far have I swam, and, and I'm gone. I'm somewhere else. Huh? My old business partner used to make fun of me because I had, we had an office. Um, it was actually a house we were in. So I would go out for a run. I would literally run around the block, come on in and go over to the giant whiteboards that we had, literally two entire walls of whiteboards. I just started writing stuff for like two minutes. Then I would put the pen down and I would go out outside. I'd run another lap or two and each lap was just under a kilometer. Come back in, write again. And then I'd go on out and I'd do you know, the rest of my run, whether it was three or four or five miles. I'd do that like at 11 o'clock in the morning because I've been working since 6 a.m. after working out already. And so that was like my mental reset. But I literally could not go and finish the run because there was so much stuff coming on out. So when I run now, I actually have my phone and I dictate a lot of notes. I stop and uh, write things. So it, when you're doing that sort of stuff, you are literally getting into the point where sort of like when you're waking up for falling asleep that I talked about earlier, where the body is producing theta waves, where you're quieting the mind. And so those loosely connected synapses are able to be essentially heard and you can find the signal in the noise. And so that's what swimming is to you. It is a form of active meditation. It's a time to think and focus. And so one of the things that I tell you, Jeff, is if you go someplace and they have a pool, you take advantage of it. If not, you have your backup plans of I will do A or B or C so I get my workout. And having that flexibility to take advantage of the situation will translate directly into other areas. Yeah. Do you know what I want to do next? And I think I'm, you've spread this craziness onto me. <laughs> I want to run in the rain. I don't know why. Why has that come to me, huh? Because I want to do something more difficult. And we we have a storm going on here, and it's just stopped. Oh, it'll be awesome. Yeah. That'll be cool. <laughs> what? And it'll be so great afterwards, because <laughs> about, like, one kilometer, and you'll be like, oh, why am I doing this? Yeah. And then you get two kilometers in, and you're like, this ain't that bad. I'm, and two I'm, kilometers, you're like, this is good. And then you're like, that was awesome. Yeah. Well, but the, the it's thing having is, those inspirations. It's having those idols, those paragons, the people who can, I could do that. I mean, so like the first time that, you know, where I was in my early twenties, I'd never run a marathon. I'm, some of my friends are doing it. It's like, yeah, maybe I'm like, then one time it just clicked. I'm like, I can do that. And then eventually when, you know, I well, won where I got to second degree and third degree black belt, I'm looking at people, I'm like, I can do that. And it's when it's that quiet, I can do that, then you're actually really ready because you're aligned and you have the capacity to do it. You've realized at your deepest level that achieving whatever that is, whether it's building a multi-million dollar business or releasing a book or running a, um, a marathon, it's not that big a deal because you're ready for it. Mm. So that quiet moment, that is actually very big. My neighbors are going to think I'm insane now because they see me running 
Yeah, and I'm I'm in my sixties, mm-hmm. and not many people in their sixties run. And they say, no, they're sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and getting fat, and pretty soon they're going to have diabetes and be miserable. And then they're going to die. I I don't know about that, but, you know, my neighbors see me out there and it's, yeah, go, Jeff, keep going. But they also listen to this podcast as well. So So maybe they'll go run in the room. Well, was it Steve Jobs said, here's to the crazy ones? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what, what excites you? What invigorates you? Jeez, I mean, that's actually part of the problem is that I get excited and invigorated by almost everything. I still have that childlike enthusiasm where, I mean, a little kid can be showing me their favorite rock, and that's the most fascinating thing in the world to me. And part of this comes from something that my dad taught me years and years ago. And I actually do a talk uh, influenced by this called Pearls of Excellence. My dad, who, as I said, was military, built a consulting firm. In fact, he retired from full-time consulting at age 80 and only because of COVID. So to fill his time, he's become a hyper-competitive bridge player. So, you know, he's got those sort of things going on, which, by the way, having intellectual stimulation is critical to uh, being able to have longevity in retirement. So once you stop working, find something else meaningful to do with your time. But my dad taught me decades and decades ago that in whatever I was doing, whether it was a class, whether it was a relationship, whether it was a seminar that I attended, book that I read, whatever, in any situation, try and find the pearl of wisdom. That one thing, that little bit of insight that I can take and use at some point. It might not be now, but at some point other point in my life. If you can string together enough of these pearls, you're going to have a very rich life. And so when you ask what gets me enthused, what gets me going, I'm just programmed. My reticular activation system is focused on finding interesting or cool things or bits of incitement from whatever. So every single podcast that I go on like this, Jeff, I am learning from them. I'm growing. I am developing. I am becoming a better uh, interviewee. I'm becoming more insightful. I get ideas for articles from these sort of things. So it is this just constant having essentially your radar up to try and find things that you can learn from. If you can become a sponge like that, and that's actually partially why this book was written so quickly is because I had a Satori moment that, um, you know, supersede crystal that drops on into your super saturated solution. Everything comes on now. I'm constantly trying to learn, trying to absorb, trying to gather so that I can be better and be able to help other people out because these ideas or resources could be useful to somebody else. So having that mindset is really a hyper-conscientious, hyper-growth mindset, and it translates into being able to do more good for other people. Okay, hyper-conscientious. What about the effects of that? What about burnout? Have you ever suffered burnout? Yes. And the thing is, I don't turn off. One of my friends asked me, are you like this all the time? I'm like, yeah. You know, and one of my <laughs> friends who met me online is like, you're like this in real life. I'm like, I'm actually worse. Uh, so you can suffer burnout when it doesn't feel like you're making progress towards your thing. So like when you're in the early stage of that time of growth, or that's when burnout is more, most likely as opposed to way out here, because you're getting the positive feedback. If you put one into the system and you get eight out or whatever that system is, 
then you're getting the feedback and you don't get burned out that much. It's completely fine. It's when you're just putting in and putting in and putting in and nothing's coming out. And you might be able to go for a week. You might be able to go for 20 days. You might be able to go for 50 days. But when you reach day 92 of doing daily YouTube videos and you're still only getting a half a dozen views for the most part, that's when you start getting burnt out because doubt creeps on in because you're not getting the positive reinforcement. So that's one of the reasons why we break things down to the smallest possible step to be able to move forward and having a, eventually you find love for the process. And that helps prevent burnout. And then you just occasionally need to mix things up. I mean, if you can be great 90% of the time and then absolute failure, so you know, you eat the salad and the salmon, you know, nine days in a row and you're really healthy, and the next day you have cupcakes and oils, that's not gonna kill you for usually. And it allows you to then reset and appreciate. So you know, occasionally taking the break allows you to avoid the burnout. And so that occasional break might be like going trick-or-treating with your kids to disrupt things. That might be uh, having a cheat day in terms of your food intake once every couple of weeks. That might be going away on date night with your significant other. I recommend people do that every two weeks minimum, okay? Just to disrupt things, get a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, newness, a new relationship energy injected into your old relationship, little things like that to mix it up. So um, one of the things I do like when I'm writing is every once in a while, I'll go away to someplace different, even if it's going over to my buddy's house and writing at their place instead of writing my office. We're going into a different office uh, within the building or, uh, you know, just going for a hike, little things like that, avoid the burnout and allow you to continuously work on things. Great. I love those reset ideas. Okay. Here's probably a tough one. I ask this to every guest who comes on the show. Are you ready? No, but <laughs> I'm never We're ready. We're never ready. We're okay? never ready. It's how we adapt and adapt. And so like, uh, real quick, imposter syndrome, people think, oh, I got promoted to this job, I'm not ready for it. They're not promoting you because you're ready. They're promoting you because you showed the mindsets and capabilities to grow into it. Yeah. So you're going to screw up. If it's not fatal, it's fixable. Understand that and then move forward. With it. I get this so often and I say to people, if you think you're ready, then the opportunity has passed. It's gone. Right. Or you know what? It's, you know, it's going to be too easy. Yeah. Okay. Joe, what's the most important thing you've ever learned in your life? You know what? The most important thing. We can be better. We always can be better no matter what we've achieved or how much we've screwed up. We can fix it. We can come on back. So, you know, we're just humans. I mean, we're these carbon-based life forms that are going to exist for maybe 100 years. Uh, you know, if we're lucky, the universe is 13.5 billion years old. Our solar system is 4.5 billion years old. Life started existing on this planet, you know, 600, 700 million years ago. So, I mean, we are literally nothing. We are like sparks. But what can we do with that? 
we can be better while we're here and we can do something to light the light for somebody else. So we are both insignificant and infinitely powerful at the same time. So what's the most important thing you've ever learned? Is that combination of humility and pride of that we are essentially nothing, but we are something and we can be more and better. I get that now. Thank you. Okay. So your book, people want to buy it. How do we get hold of your book? So the easiest place is probably online. You can get Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, basically any online bookseller. You, uh, to get it in hard copy from your local retailer, you probably have to request it and they can order it from the publisher. I always try and support the local independent businesses and bookstores simply because that's our community and it keeps the profits in the area, ultimately. Um, but one of the things is they can also get it from my website everyday-excellence.com. I recommend people go to the website anyway, simply because my website is an environment to help develop excellence. Every single day, there's a new micro blog that goes on up. I put all the podcasts there. So once this one's released, it will live there. Uh, we're putting to, uh, links to the YouTube channel, links to uh, the uh, Twitter feed. So there's all these additional resources, free resources that people can go to to get a micro quick hit, almost like a shot of espresso of Joe to help them and motivate them, to inspire them, to uh, give them additional insight so that they can go on their own journey of excellence. Okay. Just give me the web address once more, please. It is everyday-excellence.com. Awesome. Well, that's the end of our show today. Joe Templin, you have been absolutely amazing. This has gone so much further than I thought it was originally. Uh, it just absolutely incredible and a sincere thank you. Thank you indeed. Jeff, thank you. Be excellent and grow today. Oh, thank you. Well, for you, the listener, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action even 1%, a little, and even giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the like button, leave a review and share. Now, sharing on this particular episode more than any other, because Joe has a mission of reaching 100 million of people. That's no mean feat. So if we can all do something today, to help Joe, that would be to share this show with a friend. If we can do that and help Joe as a gesture of thanks and gratitude for his contribution today, we would appreciate that. And without your help, we can't succeed. So please go ahead, like, review, and more importantly, share. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really would love to hear from you and to get you onto the show. My thanks again to Joe Templin. You have been amazing. I hope you have enjoyed the show. That's all from me. Thank you again for listening and have a great day. Yeah.